this beginning of the Lord's Day. Lord, we want to thank you that you've given us an evening in which we can enjoy fellowship with your people. We thank you that that fellowship centers on your word, which you have provided to us so graciously. We acknowledge the blessing that it is in our lives, and we ask tonight that we might come to appreciate it more, that we would not only study it in more depth together, but that because of what we study tonight, we would learn the importance of studying the word day by day in private and individually. We thank you for the blessing that it represents to us, and, and ask that it might bless us even further, that it should show us the way in which we should live, the path in which we should walk. We thank you not only for the guidance that it provides, but even more than that, we thank you for the reassurance and the promise that it represents to us. We thank you for the many good things that you have done and of which we learn in the pages of your holy word. Help us tonight to be faithful to it and forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's see if we can get through all of Hebrews 4 tonight. We um, have covered a very um, important facet of the theology of Hebrews 4 in our last lesson when we looked at the issue of the Sabbath and the way in which Israel's entering the promised land is a type or a symbol of our entering into heaven, which is seen as the Sabbath rest of God's people, and therefore there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people yet ahead of which the weekly Sabbath is the commemoration and anticipation. And um, that's just a brief summary of what we saw in some depth and detail last time we were together. But now I'd like to go through the chapter uh, verse by verse and make some other points, especially toward the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 16. Let me read it through for you. Let us fear, therefore, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they. But the word of hearing did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with them that heard. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he hath said, as I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he hath said, somewhere, of the seventh day on this wise, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest. Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some should enter thereinto, and they to whom the good tidings were before preached failed to enter in because of disobedience. He again defineth a certain day, today, saying in David, so long a time afterward, even as hath been said before, today if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterward of another day. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest hath himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, give diligence to enter into that rest, that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
and there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Having been a great high priest who had passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's a tremendous chapter. Uh, if I'm going to get through it all, I'll have to be careful not to preach about every paragraph. The uh, first verse, uh, you'll see, is a solemn application of the lesson from history that has been mentioned, the lesson about the forefathers, the Jewish forefathers who were in the wilderness. The author says, therefore, let me apply this, let us fear, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. It should be obvious that the scope of God's promise in the Old Testament the promise made to the Jews extended beyond entering into the promised land under Joshua. Notice how verse 1 says, a promise being left of entering. It still remains to enter this rest, of which I'm speaking, the author says. And later on, he gives a very strong argument to the effect that the promised land could not possibly have fulfilled God's promise about rest for his people. You look in there and tell me what that argument is. I won't tell you exactly what verse it's found in, but it's down the chapter of that. Bob? Mm. I'm not sure how you would apply that to prove that uh, entering in under Joshua didn't give them the rest that was promised. But he's talking about the generation that fell in the wilderness. It didn't profit them because they didn't enter into the promised land. But later he speaks of having entered the promised land. What does he say? Doug, did you have an idea? That's right. Notice verses 7 and 8. He again defines a certain day today saying in David, so long a time afterward. David says, today if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. David writes this in Psalm 95, and as verse 8 says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterward of another day. When a dispensationalist tells us you're not reading the Bible literally, you know, that it's not fair to take it that way, you say, well, the Bible itself tells you that if David, in his day, spoke of still entering into that rest. And this was a long time after Joshua entered the Promised Land. Clearly, the Promised Land was figurative for something beyond. I, I know that we get maligned a lot. We get criticized and brought down for not reading the Bible literally enough. But when the Bible itself gives you such a clear argument, I don't see how you can miss it. Of course the promised land was figurative for something beyond it. 
or else David wouldn't have talked about still entering the promised land. Where was David when he wrote this? In the promised land. Right? He lived after Joshua, after they possessed the land, and yet he still spoke about entering that. So as verse 1 says, a promise being left of entering into his rest. Therefore, let us fear, lest aptly this promise being left, any one of you should seem to come short of it. Ultimately, the promised land that was entered under Joshua was a type or a foreshadow of a heavenly country and a heavenly city, the door to which is still open for us. Um, Hebrews talks about the heavenly country and city later on. Hebrews 11:16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we have a heavenly country and a heavenly city. And what the author says is the promise still remains to enter into that. And because that promise remains and the door is open, let us fear, let us be wary, let us be cautious, let us be serious, so that we don't fall short of entering into it. And then he reinforces this in verse 2. He says, For indeed they had good tidings preached unto them, even as we. Actually, the literal translation of the Greek is stronger and I, I want to rely on that because of the point I'm going to make. The Greek says, for we also have been evangelized just as they were. For we also have been evangelized just as they were. Does anyone, can you tell me what is striking about that? Okay, Bob. Well, that's what people tell us. Dispensationalists would have us believe that evangelizing is a New Testament concept. And then in the Old Testament, you didn't have good news preached. You didn't have an evangelistic message. You rather had a works righteousness scheme whereby people were to earn their way into God's favor. The author of Hebrews makes a very strong point. He says because they were evangelized just as we are. Or we've been evangelized just as they were. Same point, but he says it grammatically differently than I did. And it's even stronger than you realize because the tense that is used in the Greek, the perfect tense, indicates a completed activity. The evangelization that took place was complete. It was thorough. It is so complete that there's no excuse due to the deficiency of the message. Now, I've read dispensational writers who tell us, you see, that the Old Testament did not have the same content of faith as the New. That those people could not have understood what we understand, that they didn't have the same message, that in every dispensation God has a different trial, a different test of his people. Theirs was the law, ours is the gospel, Theirs was an age of legalism. Ours is an age of grace. 
The author of Hebrews wipes all of that out with one stroke, and he says, no, we have been evangelized in the same way that they were. And so the promise that we find in the Old Testament is equivalent to the good news that is preached in the New Testament. They have the same essential content. Men have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ in all ages. What's the difference? The difference of perspective, not of content. That is, historically, those who lived in the Old Testament were looking ahead to a promised Savior who would come. They were looking ahead to a Messiah that had been promised. We look back upon the accomplishment of all those promises. We look back upon God having performed all these things in history. They looked ahead, we look back, but we have been evangelized just as they were. It's the same gospel, the same good news. I want you to turn to Galatians 3.8 in this regard to see another example of a verse that's devastating to dispensationalism, I think. Galatians 3.8. To put this in context, we're talking about justification by faith and the example of our father Abraham. Verse 7 says, Know therefore that they that are of faith the same are sons of Abraham. Now verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand unto Abraham, saying, Indeed, shall all the nations be blessed. Abraham had the gospel preached beforehand to him. Abraham did, and we've learned here in Hebrews 4, that the Jews under Moses had the same gospel preached to them. Moses heard it, Abraham heard it, and that's the gospel that is proclaimed to us today. It's one of the strongest proofs of the unity of the covenant of grace that you can imagine. Dispensationalism wants to chop things up into all these chunks. The Bible keeps stressing uniformity. Unity, the gospel to Abraham, to Moses, and now to us. Essentially, the same message. Now, why the sad result, though, in the case of the preaching of the Old Testament gospel? Somebody tell me. Look at your Bibles and tell me, what is it that brought about the sad result? The gospel was preached. The message was adequate. Jim? No faith. It was not united with faith. The sad result of gospel preaching in the Old Testament was due to a lack of faith in the hearers. You have three elements mentioned. We have the message, the good tidings. We have the hearing of that message. And then the question of it being united to faith. For indeed, we have had good tidings preached, there's the message, unto us, even as they also. But the word of hearing did not profit them. There's the second point. They heard it, but it didn't profit. And then thirdly, because it was not united by faith with them, it heard. Turn to Romans 10.14, and you'll see the same three elements mentioned by Paul. You'll probably remember it from memory. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? 
can't believe without a message that is heard, which is either belief, faith, the message, and the hearing. And the point that is being made, I think, is that first of all, the message by itself is not enough. It's got to be heard. But the hearing by itself is not enough. It's got to be believed. So that these things do not work automatically. And I wish I could get this across to my congregation, to you, with some kind of effectiveness, that sitting in church and hearing does not make a difference. Or if it does, it makes a negative difference. It hardens you. Hearing is not enough. Just as the word is not enough, it must be heard. Hearing is not enough. It must be believed. And so the scripture stresses that we should fear lest we are going to hear the message but then not believe it, not unite our hearing with faith. We need to preach for decision. Contrary to neo-orthodoxy, neo-orthodoxy is a modern theological movement. You don't want to be bored this evening with the details of a pretty useless theological movement like this. But you should know that neo-orthodoxy, um, neo-orthodox theologians often say that everyone is saved and the gospel is the proclamation of God's affirmation or yes toward every man in Christ. And uh, then when the question is raised, well then why preach to people? The answer is simply, well, just so they'll they're not aware of how good things are for them unless we take the good news to them. It's good news, but it's not important to see that they stop being Buddhist or stop being pagans or stop being atheists. The fact is, every man just as he is is all right in Jesus. Oh, spare us. This is terrible. No. If you preach, you must preach for decision. It's not enough to have a message, and it's not enough even to hear the message. The message must be believed. There must be a turning around in faith toward God. So the author says in verses 3 to 5 that entrance into God's rest is conditioned upon believing God. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he has said. And so the entrance condition is faith. It always has been. Because that's what was preached in the Old Testament too. You know what was wrong with the Old Testament Jews is not that they didn't work hard enough to save themselves. It's that they didn't trust God enough to save them. Uh, there's a very interesting connection psychologically between faith and obedience. And it's not always easy to see, but I can think of some illustrations that maybe make it more plain than usual. Let's say we have a man who has disobeyed God in a real obvious way by stealing. Okay, now let's explore that psychologically. Why did you steal this money from your employer, let's say? What reasons can you think of for stealing? Think of some good ones, some noble ones. Some, I mean, relatively noble ones. Mm -hmm. Okay, my family is starving. I had to steal so that I could take care of these hungry mouths at home. Can anyone show me how that is a failure of faith? Not just a moral failure, but a failure of faith? Bob? 
shortcut saying, I don't really think God can take care of me. I don't think within the defined boundaries for moral living that God has provided that I could make out in this situation. And so do you see how in that, isn't that an obvious case, where disobedience comes from a lack of faith in God? Think of some worse illustrations. What are other reasons for stealing? You don't have enough money for the pleasures you want in life, right? How's that a lack of faith? Jim? Same thing. God wouldn't provide me with the pleasures or with things that are pleasurable unless I could take the money to get it. Yeah, I, I think there's an added dimension that you may think that God is not providing enough pleasure in your life. You see, God is not looking after me sufficiently. He doesn't know that I need, you know, more fun times or a better TV set or what I mean. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> it really is terrible. Of course, of course. And that's what I'm getting at is that we don't trust, one, God's ability to take care of us or the sufficiency of that provision when we steal. Now, if, if I can do this in terms of an obvious illustration about stealing, can we apply this to other sins? Is adultery a failure to trust God? Yeah, it is. Maybe in ways kind of parallel to what we just talked about. How about telling a lie? Why do people tell lies? Well, one obvious reason is they get in a bind and they see that as the easiest way out of a tough situation, right? Which is to say, God, I don't trust you. I've got to take this shortcut again. Uh, how about gossiping about people? Think of any sin you want, and one way or another, it shows that you don't trust God. And so all along, you see, God's entrance requirement for the promised land has been one of faith. And of course, obedience goes hand in hand with faith. If you trust God, you're going to obey Him. If you don't trust Him, you aren't. Entering the promised land is not a matter of works righteousness. It's a matter of living in faith toward God. Um, We've already studied verses 3 to 5 pretty thoroughly, so let me just make one note that I don't think I mentioned before. It says here that... Uh, um, well, let me find it. The quotation from Genesis, um, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. You may not be aware of the fact, um, until you think on it, or read Genesis over again, but... The seventh day in the creation account is the only one for which no evening is mentioned. The first day opens and closes. The second day opens and closes. The third day opens and closes. And the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. But the seventh day opens, never closes. Now someone could say, yeah, well that's, I mean, just so happens the author didn't mention that it closes. Well, I don't know. Later theologians, and I think later writers of scripture too, find significance in the fact that the seventh day is begun and then God eternally enters into his rest because his works are finished. And it's that rest that he bids us to enter into. Okay, verses 6 to 8 we've already talked about. When Psalm 95 was composed, obviously the promised rest was still remaining to be entered because David spoke of it remaining, yet Israel was in the promised land. Therefore the promise given to Israel could not have been about the promised land per se. The promised land was only a type or token of the real rest that was coming, a lasting city which is to come. Hebrews 13, verse 14. 
For we have not here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. Now, who enters into this rest then? Um, it should be obvious from everything we've said that when we enter into heaven, or enter into the final, the new heavens and the new earth that lies beyond um, death, that we enter into the presence of God in that way we've entered into the promised land. Revelation 14.13 confirms that interpretation with words that are very similar to what we find in verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews chapter 4. Revelation 14th chapter, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, from henceforth, yes, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their works follow with them. Those who die in the Lord rest from their labors. And in verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 4, the author says, There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest hath himself rested from his works, or labors. Another way of translating it, as God did from his. Okay, so that completes the argument. The promised land was really a picture of heaven. The city which is yet to come. Something that we're pressing into. And those who die in the Lord, those who die in faith, are going to enter into that rest. Is heaven going to be a time of perpetual inactivity? Since it's called a time of rest and resting from our labors? Yeah, I see the looks on your faces. Some of you say, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Or this time of year when everyone's you know, running around, has so many things to do, inactivity is probably a blessing for us. But I want to assure you, Heaven's not going to be a place where you don't do things. Um, and I think you have to admit, even though you need a breather right now, that would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? If we just sat around for all eternity with nothing to do. The book of Revelation indicates that those who are in the presence of God worship Him. The, new, the idea of the new heavens and the new earth in a city suggests that there's going to be a taking care of creation, even as there should have been a taking care of creation at uh, the time of uh, Adam and Eve's creation. But we're now going to live in a world where all the things we do in the created order are done in the with righteousness and sin not interfering and bringing us down. Okay, so verse 11 then. Now we can start into the application of all this. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest, that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. Let us give diligence is translated in other verse, uh, versions as let us strive to enter into that rest. I see some of you have that. The word actually means to concentrate all of your energies, to be earnest, to make haste, or put it another way, to show the zeal of perseverance. Let us show the zeal of perseverance to enter into that rest. This doesn't fit in with some popular preaching. And it is really popular because people love to hear this idea of let go and let God. The Christian life is not one of, of striving, of earnest pressing ahead. The Christian life is not one of 
diligence, or to use the Calvinistic word, perseverance, Christian life is one of laying back and taking your ease and letting God do everything for you. Isn't that what grace is all about? We hear this on the TV, we hear it on the radio, some of the larger congregations in Orange County hear this all the time. But it is not biblical. The biblical message is one of gird up your loins and run the race before you. Yes, put all your effort into it. Yes, strive, be diligent, persevere like an athlete has to persevere toward the end. Paul spoke this way in Philippians, the third chapter, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal under the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Beautiful passage. Paul says, I forget the things, the past, and I look to the future, and I strive, and I stretch myself, and I press toward the goal. The Christian life is a life of striving, pressing forward, persevering to the end. When people preach this idea of letting go and letting God and just kind of floating along as a Christian, just becoming a passive trophy of grace, if you will, then it seems to me that they have presumed that we've already entered into our rest. Haven't we just read that once you enter into your rest, you, you cease from your labors? The striving and the testing and the pressing someday will be over, but it's not over now. And what the author says is, if you assume that it is, then there's the danger. You're going to fall short of it. And so he tells us, let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest, that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. It is not by accident that the particular word for disobedience used in the Greek is apatheia. Anyone... Can you hear an English word in there? What is the word? Apathy. Apathy. That's right. And so is Christianity this idea of just laying back and being indifferent, being apathetic? No, just the opposite. He says, let us give diligence to enter that no man fall after the same example of apathy. Disregard for God's revealed will is considered despising his covenant. And though it kind of um, messes up easy believism and certain theological schemes that have, a, I think, a really hollow notion of the grace of God and salvation by faith, Hebrews 5.9 very clearly says that Jesus, having become perfect, became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation. One cannot be a Christian who is saved by Jesus Christ who is not willing to obey him. Does that mean we're saved by our goodness, by the merit of our works, that our obedience merits salvation? No, it doesn't. But people who think that it does must necessarily guard the grace of God by denying the necessity of obedience. And must say, no, obedience can't be necessary because then we're saved by works. But that's illogical. We are saved by a faith that obeys God. 
And why does it obey him? I mean, we talked about it earlier. Just because you trust him. Just because you believe God, you do what he wants you to do. And the Bible does not allow us to divorce these notions of faith and obedience. Obedience is faithful, and faith is obedient. The two go hand in hand. And now we get to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. The author thinks of the word of God because he's just mentioned disobedience. Let's not fall after the same example of disobedience, but disobedience presupposes something. Presupposes a word from God. You know, if God hadn't spoken to us, if God hadn't revealed his will, then we couldn't disobey him, could we? That makes sense. So now the author says, if we're not going to be disobedient, then we better pay attention to the word of God. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and it's active. That is to say, the word of God cannot be idle. It cannot be without effect. What does Isaiah 55, 11 say? That's right. The word of God will not return unto him void. It must always accomplish that for which he sent it to do. The word of God is always bringing about an effect. Now, I have preached this many times. I've said it in Bible study, but I think it's so important that I'm not embarrassed to repeat it again. If the word of God is always having an effect, and we go to church and we listen to the preached word or we read the Bible, and we say, well, I don't, I don't see that it makes any difference, so maybe we don't even pay attention. Don't you have to admit there are some days we walk out of church, you'd have a very tough time telling people what the theme of the sermon was, much less the premises that went into developing it, much less what the specific application was. Come, I, I hope this isn't true in our congregation because we have our sermon in review often in the communicate and so forth, but you know, you can come to the middle of the week and you have to think real hard, what was the sermon about last week? Well now, when we are not paying attention to the Word of God, that doesn't mean it hasn't had an effect. We might tend to think, oh, well, it's I was neutralized that day, I just didn't pay attention. No, there's never a neutral response. What happened is that on that day, and I don't mean unto damnation, but to some degree, your heart was hardened. Because you were apathetic to the word of God. But God says his word never comes back void. Never comes back and says, well, zero effect. Mm -hmm. The word's going to come back and it's either going to have improved your life or it's going to have hardened your heart. It must have an effect. The word of God is living and active. It cannot be a dead letter. It will always achieve some purpose. Because as the author of the word is alive, so his own word is alive. In fact, it's interesting. If we had time, we could do a theological exploration of this. In Genesis 1-3, how did God create the world? How did he give life to the world? By his word. God spoke, and it happened. Over and over again through Genesis, God spoke, and it happened. Look at Hebrews 11-3. By faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God. 
And so the Word of God gave life to creation. Moreover, the Word of God sustains life in creation. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, upholding all things by the word of his power. Everything in creation is borne along and upheld by the word of his power. So the word created the world, the word sustains the world, and the Bible tells us that the word regenerates, gives new life men as well. 2 Corinthians 4.6 and 1 Peter 1.23. Let's look at them quickly. 2 Corinthians 4.6 Seeing it is God that said light shall shine out of darkness who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who called light out of darkness has shined in our hearts. 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides. Interesting. The Word of God lives, and we have been begotten again by that very Word. So notice the Word of God creates the world, sustains the world, and gives new life to the world. And so it is a living Word, very appropriate, the living Word. But it's not just an active, effective, living Word. It's likened now to a two-edged sword. God's word is a sword. Remind you of any other passages in the New Testament you can think of? Somebody help me. Revelation. Okay, Revelation speaks both in the early chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, and chapter 2, verse 12, but also in the later chapters, Revelation 19, 15, of a sword proceeding from Christ's mouth, the word of God out of his mouth. But now, this probably uh, an even more commonly known passage where the Word of God is likened to a sword. Amy, can you remember? I bet you've taught it in Bible school. No, I'm not thinking of that. Maybe you have one that I didn't think of. Yes, Ephesians, right? Am I right? Let's look it up. Ephesians 6.17 Take to yourself the whole armor of God. And in that armor, Paul goes through the various pieces of the armor. In verse 17 it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Word of God's the sword of God's Holy Spirit. And it's the word that proceeds from God's mouth, from the, from the very mouth of Jesus Christ. So the author says, you better pay attention, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why does it say it's two-edged? Well, there's a lot of interpretations of the two edges to that sword. I think maybe it's kind of fanciful 
going to, I'm not sure his point is that it cuts two ways. But if it is, I would suggest that the idea here is that the gospel, the word of God, cuts one way in blessing, it also cuts the other way in cursing people, depending upon whether you believe it or, diso, uh, or disbelieve it. Uh, you see that, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, it's a savor of life unto life and of death unto death. There is blessings and cursings. If the two-edgedness of this is intended to be taken as referring to anything else, it could simply be, because that was the most vicious kind of sword, the most effective kind of sword for battle, is two-edged. The author could just be saying, the most effective instrument of all, a two-edged sword. That's what the Word of God is like. But you see, this instrument, he says, pierces and penetrates more deeply than any instrument in man's hand could. Because this penetrates to the very core of man's being. You see that? It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow. This is one of the most um, important passages cited by trichotomists to prove their view of man's constitution. Trichotomist? What is that? Anyone want to take a stab at defining trichotomy? Okay. Um, I, go ahead. That's right. The view of man that he's made up of three parts. Trichotomy means three cuts. There's soul, spirit, and body. In fact, you get some pretty elaborate theological uh, systems and applications to man. You get it in Bill Gothard, for instance, and, and others too, the carnal Christian idea. There are a lot of applications of this trichotomy view that there are two immaterial aspects of man, soul and spirit, and then, of course, body. And doesn't this passage prove that soul and spirit are different? This says the word of God pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. There you have it. Can't divide what is the same. And so this must prove that point. Until you look at it a little closer. What's wrong with that interpretation? Anybody see a problem, Bob? Well, but, but our friends would tell us they, sit, they shouldn't. That's too sloppy. Soul and spirit have some common features, but they can be distinguished. And the Word of God pierces to the soul and the person. Well, that's fine. But you see, what part of the person? What aspect of the person? The spirit is the liveliness of the person, and the soul is the spiritual direction of the person. What's that? Oh, I see what you mean. The Bible does speak of, uh, for instance, uh, Noah and, um, was it nine souls being saved through the flood and that sort of thing. And it means just not that their ghosts went into the ark, but um, that many persons. I understand that. But here's a verse that shows that you can divide the two, doesn't it? Is that the I think that's what we're going to have to say, but I'd like you to argue for that. There's two ways that you can see the necessity. Of what, do you understand what Ron's saying? 
Ron is suggesting that the verse says that the Word of God divides soul and spirit on the one hand from joints and marrow on the other. That you have a dichotomy, if you will. There's two sections that are cut apart, and the one section is described as soul-spirit, the other's joint-marrow, rather than having two kinds of cuts within two domains. The spiritual, soul and spirit, is cut apart, then the physical, joints and marrow. Now, you see, this is what joints and marrow cut apart. Anybody know their biology well enough? So you can't divide joint from marrow, can you? That doesn't make any sense. There's another argument that none of you would be aware of uh, because it comes from the Greek itself. There's a thing called uh, a particle in Greek grammar. T-E is the way it's uh, spelled, the tap particle. And often that is used as a marker, almost like an algebra, as a bracketing device to tell you where the grouping breaks. It so happens we have a tap particle in this verse. And you know where it comes? Right after, um, of soul and spirit, tap, both joints and marrow, which suggests then that you have soul and spirit on one side of the bracket, joints and marrow on the other. And I think that's the way we should take it. Basically, this is a, an elaborate literary way of saying the dividing of soul from body, or spirit from body. And uh, it's two ways of speaking of the body, two ways of speaking of the immaterial part of man. Well, obvious. I think the point that the author is making is division of soul from body as at death. But rather, when it comes to drawing those distinctions, it's the Word of God that can do it. It goes that far into man's core. It goes right down to the soul-body division. It's not like it just deals with surface matters. It gets to the heart of the matter. In fact, that metaphor is used intentionally because the verse ends, it is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what dividing soul from spirit means, getting right down to the heart of the matter. And, uh, <clears throat> well, well, the next thing I wanted to say in my notes here is you notice that the heart is not simply the seat of emotions, then, because here the heart does have thoughts, and it does have intentions. An intention is volitional, a thought is rational, and therefore we shouldn't think of the heart as just the emotional part of man, because according to this verse, the heart thinks and plans, too. And the Word of God discerns those thoughts and discerns those plans. Very simply put, the Word of God penetrates and judges us. It judges our innermost thoughts and intentions so that God's Word exposes us in a way that no x-ray could. You know, you cannot devise some physical mechanism, x-ray thing, or like a, uh, one of those devices you go through at the airport that checks for metal in you and so forth. You can't devise some physical mechanism that's going to discern what you're really thinking and how good your intentions and in your motives are, but the Word of God does not. By the way, that's one of the reasons in counseling why it's important to keep people reading the Word of God. You come to me and you're having a problem that I want to expose that I think you need to feel guilty about, I can tell you that you're wrong. 
And it may be effective, but you know it's far more effective when you open the Bible and you say, oh, it really gets to the heart of us. God's Word comes with authority, with effectiveness. It is living and active, and it's going to judge us. It's going to find us out. It's going to search us to the depths of our soul. I think that may be one of the reasons why people don't get into a regular habit of Bible study. One reason is laziness, apathy. We find it difficult to, to do the, the, the mental labor of reading and studying and paying attention. But you know what happens when you start paying attention? Boom! And you have all these things coming at you. And it's, and it's difficult because having learned, you're either going to have to obey and do some reforming of your life, or you're going to be in more trouble. You, the more you read, the more guilty you feel. And it's so easy just to put it away and say, well, I'll take away the source of the pain. Right? The Word of God is going to pierce you and pierce you and pierce you. It's really going to find us out. But we need to be found out. Someone says, okay, I'd rather not go through the painful process. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. Now not the Word of God, but God himself. There is no creature it is not manifest in the sight that all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing in all of creation is unexposed before God. If you don't want to go to the word of God and have your heart found out, then remember this, you're still going to be laid open naked before God. It's not going to be hid. 1 Samuel 16, 7, we're reminded that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. God sees the character. And um, I sometimes see it as a disadvantage, but sometimes as an advantage that we can't see the hearts of people. And it could be a very depressing experience. Especially at Christmas time. Everyone is all of a sudden beginning to look so much more cheerful and nice and kind. But if we could see into their hearts, it would be devastating. of the foolishness that is in us in our sinful nature that we're aware that God sees everything but since we don't have to confront that fact God doesn't bring it to our attention um, day by day we just kind of put it off it's like eschatological it's out there at the distance but if we had, the people we saw at the store or at church or work or school every day could see into the depths of our souls boy you know we'd make some changes you're absolutely right but God sees us. He sees every creature. And the author here uses language that is really um, overwhelming. There is no creature that is not naked and laid bare before him. You see, that makes God's grace all the more amazing, doesn't it? When people do you a favor, when people are nice to you, we often, if we're honest, have to admit that if they only knew me, they might not be as nice to me. And yet God knows you much better than anybody. The one who knows you best of all has done the most for you. He sees right through you. He still loves you. He still graciously saves you. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. 
because the psalmist dwells on this notion of God seeing him inside and out. Psalm 139. First of all, uh, verses 1 to 12, and then we'll look at the end of the psalm as well. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 1. O Jehovah, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou searchest out my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but, Lord Jehovah, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overwhelm me, and the light of the and the light about me shall be night. Even the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Amazing, isn't it? There's no hiding from God. And so he ends the psalm, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. There is no creature that does not stand totally exposed before God. Men don't like that. And I, I told you, I think, the example of Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist French philosopher. Sartre studied religion. He, he came from a religious family. In fact, um, I think it's his uncle, it's Albert Schweitzer. Uh, Sartre gave up on religion, though, and he says explicitly in his autobiography, it's because he could not stand the idea of a God who was always looking at him. A God who was constantly staring at him. And so he says one day he collared the Holy Spirit in the basement and threw him out. Of course he didn't. He just deceived himself enough that he didn't have to worry about it any longer as far as he knew or believed. But God sees us inside and out, and every creature is laid open and bare before him in this way. Verse 14. Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now the author moves into a new section of his argument. He begins to deal with the superiority of Christ to Aaron. But it takes us back to what we were looking at a few weeks ago. It takes us back to Hebrews 2, verse 17, through the first verse of chapter 3. We read about Jesus becoming a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. Verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brothers, partakers of heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. He has begun the thought of Jesus as the high priest, and then there's this long, not parenthetical really, but this long exposition of how it is we are the house of Jesus. 
if we persevere in our faith. Israel didn't persevere, didn't press into the promised land, didn't know God's rest, but we can if we are men of faith. If we listen to that word of God that discerns the very thoughts of our hearts. And now he comes back, you see, to what he began with, Jesus, the great high priest. It's a constant source of encouragement, according to this author, to consider this high priest. That's what we are told in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, meditate upon, give thought to the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus. Do you meditate on who Jesus is as your high priest? The author has told us in verse 17 of chapter 2 that this high priest made propitiation for sin. In verse 18, he has told us that this high priest has seen victory over temptation. And now when he returns to the theme, in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says he has passed through the heavens. Three things about this high priest have to be remembered. He made propitiation. He has seen victory over temptation. And he's passed through the heavens. Do you ever stop ask yourself why that reference to passing through the heavens? What is that all about? First of all, when did our great high priest pass through the heavens? At his ascension, that's right. He ascended on high to the right hand of God. But the author of Hebrews sees priestly importance to that ascension. And if you think of the Old Testament, um, Procedure, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, this will make a great deal of sense and be really a wonderful verse to meditate on. What happened to the high priest in the Levitical order? When he went to make atonement for sin, where did he go? He went into the Holy of Holies. Where was the Holy of Holies? I'm sorry? It was behind the curtain, so he passed out of view for a while, even as Jesus has passed out of view. But where was the Holy of Holies? Well, not always. It was in the tabernacle, which is in various places, eventually in Jerusalem. Well, the presence of God was there. You're all doing much better than I, than I want. I want just a real general answer. Where was it? Was it on earth? Every time the Hebrew high priest did the work of atonement, he went into an earthly tabernacle. But your great high priest passed through the heavens. What was that earthly tabernacle all about? It was a shadow of what? God's throne room. Remember, that was made according to the pattern of God's throne room in heaven. The earthly tabernacle was not the reality, it was the shadow. The reality was the very presence of God in heaven. And so what the author is telling us here, praise God, is that Jesus didn't enter into the Holy of Holies on earth, but he was a high priest who passed through the heavens. He went into the real presence of God there to make propitiation for our sins, there to appear in our behalf and to plead our case before the Father. And he says this is a constant source of encouragement to remember that you have that kind of a high priest. Having been a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who's come into the very presence of God to minister for us, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
quickly notice two titles are given to this high priest, Jesus and Son of God. I think the variation has to do with being both man and God. As Jesus is the son of Mary, what was Mary told by Gabriel? You'll call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. So there's the earthly name of our Savior. But he's not just Mary's son, Jesus. He's the son of God as well. He's both human and divine. And in verse 15, we learn that his humanity was not a pretense. He was truly human and could truly be tempted. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, we read of Satan doing his best to tempt Jesus and to bring him down, to offer him a shortcut whereby he wouldn't have to go to the cross, to offer him the kingdoms of this world to just bow down to Satan. Jesus was tempted. I think it's interesting. We can't look at it because we're running out of time here. But in Luke 22, verse 28, how Jesus describes his followers, he says, You who have been with me in temptations in this world. Jesus was a man who was tempted. The Bible says he was tempted in every point. There is not a single line of temptation, a single category of temptation that Jesus didn't experience himself. Is temptation sinful? No. It is not sinful for you to be tempted. I think many Christians make the mistake of thinking I've, I'm defeated in my spiritual life because I'm being tempted. But temptation is not sinful. What you do with temptation may be sinful. Jesus was tempted. And yet it says here, without sin. For we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. How crucial that is. For if Jesus had sinned, then he'd need a sacrifice for his own sins, and he couldn't be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest that we need. He was tempted in every point like us, but he did not give in to it. He did not sin. And I know I've kept a little overtime, but I, I just couldn't see us going this far without getting to the best part of the chapter. The conclusion, verse 16, Therefore, put all this together. When you remember that Jesus is a high priest who's made propitiation, who's been tempted in every point like you, who has passed through the heavens and now ministers in the very presence of God in your behalf. When you remember the word of God that you must obey and how you must press to enter into God's rest. Therefore, remembering all these things, Draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. This is one of the most important contrasts between the New and the Old Covenant. Could people in the Old Testament draw near to the very presence of God with boldness? No. They were kept at a distance, weren't they? Who went into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. Only once a year. Who entered into the outer um, chamber, the holy place? Only the priest, and only a certain rank of priests. And who could come to the temple? If only someone was sacrificed. And so the whole emphasis was upon keep your distance. God is holy. You are not. But now the author of Hebrews says the very opposite takes place. We come now barging into the very throne room of God. And we don't do it hesitatingly. 
when you think about the holiness of God, I think that's the result. I mean, we would tend to, you know, maybe just kind of creep in there and hesitatingly make our desires known. But the author says, boldly come right before the presence of God. Why? Because our high priest has entered in before us. He's opened the way for us. He's passed through the heavens. And nothing can keep us then from coming in with confidence to the very presence of God. And notice the emphasis upon God's throne. What kind of throne is it? It's a throne of grace. Does that comfort your heart? God's also got a holy throne. It's the same one, to be sure. But when you think about the holiness and righteousness of God, that becomes an awesome thing that, that puts us maybe back and makes us hesitant to come in. The author says it's a throne of grace. God operates and rules in a gracious way that we might find mercy. Mercy is available at this throne. And so how often should we go to God? I mean, even the best of earthly fathers get worn out by the children coming asking for things, don't they? When I'm at my best, and well, not always by any means, when I'm at my best, I still get tired of four children having needs, coming and coming and coming and coming. But I've got a heavenly Father who rules on a throne of grace who says, come every time you need me. Anytime you have a need. Any kind of need. At any time. Isn't that what it says here? Let us therefore draw near with boldness under the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. What do you need? Well, you know, there are a lot of things you need that you're not getting. A lot of things I need that I'm not getting. And you know why we're not getting them? James says you have not because you ask not. That's an incredible message. I mean, God has this open-door policy to you. He says, come in any time, boldly, and just ask me, and I'll help you. I'll never turn you down. You need something, ask for it. You've got it. Now, of course, we ask with the attitude that nevertheless not my will but thine be done. We sometimes don't really know what we need. And we have to be corrected on that. But the point is there's no need that we have that he will not take care of. What a gracious God we have. And the only reason we have access to him is because there's a high priest who passed through the heavens before us and now is ministering there. And since Christ has opened the way to the Holy of Holies. Remember when he died on the cross? How the veil of the temple was rent in two so that now there was an open access to the Holy of Holies, symbolic of the fact that God's people come right into his presence now. They're not kept at a distance. And when we come to his presence, we see him reigning on a throne of grace. Let me close with this note. In the Holy of Holies, God was said to be enthroned. Yeah, right? And what was God's throne in the Holy of Holies? What was the piece of furniture called? Okay, you, you beat me to the punch, but the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant had a lid that was called, as Paul said, the mercy seat. You see where the author of Hebrews is giving his theology? The reason we come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy is the author knew that when you come into the Holy of Holies, God reigns from the mercy seat. 
you need help tonight, just remember that. Pray. And don't pray with hesitation saying, well, I've already gone three times this week to God. He's going to get tired of hearing from me. And don't say, well, I haven't been good enough to merit God's attention. Remember that God never gets worn out from His children coming. And He never expects them to come and earn what they're asking for. Because He says, this is a throne of grace. I'll show you mercy in the time of need. I don't know if you're like me, but I pray more and more as I think about my Christian life. I know how much I need God's mercy. Father, we thank you that you've given us such a blessed Savior in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that he is truly man and truly God. We thank you that he has been put through every trial and every test and temptation so that he knows what we go through. He can genuinely sympathize with us in all, all of our distress all of our temptation, all the turmoil of our spiritual lives. We thank you that this high priest, our Savior Jesus Christ, has now entered into your very presence to intercede in our behalf and make propitiation for our sins and open the door to us, a door that never closes so that we might come and ask to meet our needs. We want to acknowledge with gratitude tonight that you meet our needs because you're a merciful Father, that you rule from the throne of grace in heaven, and that grace is the source of our lives, our every blessing in this world, because you have been good to us despite our sins. Lord, we're reminded tonight that you know our sins, in fact, as the scripture says, you see us through the wind naked in front of you. So we're all the more grateful that you still care for us for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have prayed that you would motivate us tonight by these thoughts to remember, one, the aid, the benefit, the help that is available to us at all times, graciously and mercifully so. And on the other hand, remember that you see through us and know everything about us. And so we must take very seriously the teachings of your word. We must pay attention to we must not be indifferent or apathetic. We must study it. We must become diligent students of your word, that it might discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Judge us and show us where we are wrong and set us on the right path, that we will, with diligence, obey you and therefore give all of our energy to press in, to enjoy become part of that eternal rest that you have set before us as your people. We ask you that you would do a work in our lives tonight to change us, to improve our walk with you, to give us greater confidence and greater diligence and obedience because we've been here and studied these things from your word. We ask that that word would not return void, that it would do its good work in our lives beginning right now. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.